Hey, Corey, I've got a number for you. All right, let's have it. One. Yeah, you said you got a number for me. What is it? <laughs> no, the number is one. Uh, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, we probably don't have a future as an Abbott and Costello revival act, but uh, all right, so one, that could be uh, that could be pretty much anything. So uh, no guess today. What is it? So uh, one is the number of truly definitive reports on the rental housing market, summarizing market conditions and providing insight on the full range of issues facing the market. Huh. Uh, I think I'm maybe doubting your number a little bit. There's really just one? Yep. When it comes to complete and thorough coverage, including supply, demand, affordability, equitable housing, climate change, and even more than that, the Joint Center's rental housing report that comes out once every two years is the definitive source, capturing what is most important to the rental market, and it's a fresh look that we get every two years. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And today we're fortunate to be joined by someone who can help us bring it all together. Alex Herman, a senior research analyst at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University and a key contributor to the America's Rental Housing Report. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And maybe we can just start and you can give us kind of a little bit of the background on the report, how it gets approached every two years and uh, what brought us to this year's report. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you both about our new report. And it's America's Rental Housing 2022, which we release at the beginning of the year every two years. And we've done that now for the past 16 years. And that, of course, means that for better or worse, our last rental report came out in January of 2020. And a lot has happened in rental housing since then. So really, this report is our attempt to dig into the state of uh, rental housing, rental housing markets, the federal response to the pandemic, and where that's left the 44 million renter households across the country, and really focusing in on the past several years and doing what we can to contextualize some of those trends by taking the longer view when prudent. So I'd really like to see, you know, since a couple years have passed and we're still in a pandemic, uh, you know, what are some of the key themes in this report? I think really the place to start is with the state of the rental market overall. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to take a step back and think about um, when we re- released this report two years ago, right, rents had been rising for a decade at that point, and usually at a decent clip. Um, by most measures, over most of that period, rent growth had outplaced inflation of all other goods and was rising faster than incomes. Um, and this matters because it was leading to concerns about entrenched uh, affordability problems. So between 2014 and 2019, we saw a reduction in renter housing cost burdens, but these improvements were modest at best and left close to half of renters spending more than 30% of their incomes on housing. Um, that's higher than the cost burden rate we observed in the early 2000s, and it's certainly much higher than the burdens um, we've witnessed in prior decades. Um, and then in early 2020, shortly after our report release, uh, the pandemic throws uh, markets into flux and generates a considerable amount of uncertainty. So nationally, rents declined or flattened out, depending on the source you look at. Um, according to data from CoStar that we use, asking rents in the professionally managed sector declined slightly in the last two quarters of 2020, as vacancy rates shot up half a percentage point in just a year. 
why all this occurred in many ways is obvious, but I think it's worth taking stock of. Uh, millions of people lost their jobs or were furloughed or had to forego work for caretaking responsibilities. Um, many dense urban areas where a lot of rental housing is concentrated also became a less attractive place to live, or at least temporarily. Many students left college campuses, right, as young adults returned to live with their parents for a period of time. And a lot of households that would have formed simply put off forming as a result of the pandemic. And all of that led to a significant softening of demand for rental housing in 2020. And then when you turn to 2021 and the past year, the reversal of all those trends contributed to what we're seeing in the market today, right? So the proliferation of the COVID vaccine, uh, millions of jobs added back to the economy, urban amenities becoming an attractive option yet again, and the resumption of kind of normal household formation of all boosted demand for rental housing to historic levels. And that's a large chunk of what our report is dealing with, both the, the implications of that growth and, and what it means for renter households across the country. Yeah, and I think that it's absolutely, you know, when I think of this particular report that you had to do, and as we said earlier, this is something that's done every two years, this is such a remarkable one to write in terms of just how much whipsawing there's been in the market. And like you said, I think you did a nice job too just now of describing how there were, you know, fundamental issues that were kind of leading into it that where affordability we we all have been talking about for, you know, a decade plus in terms of rental housing affordability. And then um, to have the whipsawing in the economy right now and then the incredible shifts in the rental market is really something else. And you cited the CoStar data on the turndown. I think that some of, you also cite in another part of the report, some of the um, turnaround in the market. And that one, I think that you're using real page data and looking across 150 markets for a number of things. And just how much markets are moving together, I guess, in terms of uh, recovery. And you mentioned that a little bit. Oftentimes we see a dispersion across markets in terms of which ones are recovering in this one, can you speak a little bit to where has there been strength and, you know, it's been fairly broad and how that plays out across the country? Yeah. And I'm, I'll say often kind of throughout this conversation, say things like the lowest or highest uh, on record or talk about, right, like how these trends are in many ways unprecedented. And unprecedented has been kind of the word, the buzzword we've thrown around a lot um, as a center when producing this report. And it's something I keep coming back to. Um, and another way in which we're seeing unprecedented change is the rapid escalation of rents, right, uh, uh, resulting from tightening Man. So, um, like high, starting high level, maybe going back to that CoStar data, um, asking rents in professionally managed apartments um, when they they turned negative at the end of 2020, but began to kind of turn around in the first quarter of 2021, moving up about 1.7% annually. But by the third quarter of 2021, we're up 10.9% from the year prior. And that's true for like, you know, across property segments. So rents in the highest quality segment in four and five star properties were up the most at 13.8% growth. And these are the properties that took the biggest hit during the pandemic, right? Where, where rent declines were concentrated in 2020. These units are higher costs and they're more likely to be located in denser urban areas hardest hit by the pandemic. But even in units like lower quality units, uh, we've seen rising rents uh, well above uh, pre-pandemic growth rates. So year over year rent growth was 4.3% in one and two star properties and 11% in three star properties. And that compares um, to about two to 3% rent growth in both segments prior to the 
pandemic. And another way, and in a way that I think that more, adre- more directly addresses your question, but another way that uh, rent growth has been unprecedented is how widespread it is across markets. So in that data you mentioned from RealPage, asking rents in the professionally managed sector rose in nearly every one of the 150 markets that RealPage tracks. So in fact, only Midland and San Francisco, uh, two unique markets in their own right, right, saw, saw rents decline in the third quarter of last year. And that compares to about one third of markets nationally a year ago in the third quarter of 2020. Um, uh, perhaps most striking to me is how many markets experience double-digit rent growth, right? So rents rose by 10% or more in just over half of markets, or 77 of the 150 markets that real page tracks. In eight of those markets, rents soared by more than 20%. So double-digit rent growth is occurring in markets in every region of the country also. And that's, in some ways, what's shocking. It's happening in relatively affordable, low-cost markets. It's happening even in a smaller number of high-cost markets. Um, So this market tightness is just pervasive across the country. And just to give you know some examples, right? Um, rents increase most in some Florida markets and markets out west, right? So rents rose more than twenty percent in Naples, Phoenix, Boise, Sarasota, West Palm Beach, Tampa, Tucson, and Las Vegas. So that's all eight or so markets where that occurred. And really, all of the top 30 to 35 markets for rent growth were in the South and West. But double-digit rent growth also occurred in the Midwest, in in smaller markets like Kalamazoo, Flint, Grand Rapids, uh, Fort Wayne, and Indianapolis. And then in the Northeast, a smaller number of markets, uh, uh, also small markets, Manchester, Portland, um, and Allentown in the Northeast. So that... that trend across you know all of those markets that kind of gets it it's not just a rebound of, of uh you know rent decreases over time like this is true just supply and demand questions uh just true rent growth even beyond how things were before the pandemic yeah that's that's a good chunk of what's happening and so not reflected in our report as a paper that nmhc actually just put out i think earlier this year maybe in january that that kind of asks that and addresses that question like how much of this is catch up is like rent growth catch up right and they find that that's that explains a good chunk of what's happening but it's not everything right rent rent growth is exceeding the pace you would have expected without the pandemic certainly nationally and in most markets right and I think what you're seeing happening in a large number of these markets, also these are smaller markets, right? Especially the ones in the in the Midwest and Northeast that I mentioned. So it really doesn't take a large number of renter households to really transform um, that market. One thing that the NMHC uh, paper really doesn't address is what's happened to vacancy rates, right? There's, there's no catch-up vacancy kind of in the same way. And vacancy rates are much lower now than they have been in decades um, across all kinds of different surveys. Yeah, and I think that you guys' perspective, I mean, you're really able to um, kind of think about the broader market and how the housing market works together in this way. And as you say, I mean, oftentimes the single family market runs at at really low vacancy rates. And that's especially true right now, right? Is like the single family market is really tight and it's had its own effects, which kind of have spillover into the multifamily and rental market overall. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, I think the state of the rental market um, is in many ways explained by the kind of shape of rental demand that we're seeing. Um, and I, I talked briefly about the one-off demand shocks in, in the opener, but there's also been some notable um, long and short-term trends within that surging demand that I think are are, are noteworthy and worth talking to. Um, and, and perhaps most important is the growth in higher-income renter households in particular. And that's happening due to shifting preferences um, for the kinds of amenities rental housing has to offer, but it's also due to what's happening, as you alluded to, on the for sale side of the market, right? Early on in the pandemic, there was a surge in demand for home ownership that's largely persisted, right? That's due to historically low interest rates, higher savings rates, and you know the desire for more space um, as a large share of the country simply started spending more time at home, right? But at the same time, inventory of homes for sale has reached all-time lows. And that's because of the pandemic, of course, but also because of low levels of home building for more than a decade. And what that's really done is push up home prices um, even more rapidly than rents uh, somehow. So if you look at data from Zillow, in September, typical home values rose about 19% compared to 11% for typical rents. Um, and that's true in nearly every large market in the country that Zillow tracks. So in 99 of the 100 large markets that Zillow tracks, home price growth outpaced rent growth in September. And that's been the norm more or less since the start of the pandemic. Home price growth is oftentimes doubling rent growth. And just a note for you all and for your listeners, we released four interactive charts in conjunction with this report. And this analysis is one of them. So the interactive allows you to select any one of those 100 markets and kind of see the trends of the past six or seven years yourself. And in nearly every case, right, you see rents rising at this absurd pace. And somehow that still pales in comparison to home price growth. But this is a report on rental housing, right? Why do we care about what's happening with home prices? Um, but what's happening in the for sale market matters a great deal for what happens in the rental market. And I think that's never been clearer for me than during the past year or so, right? So potential home buyers who can't or don't want to compete in that kind of competitive for sale market either look to the rental market to kind of fill their needs or they remain in their rentals for longer than planned. And that just kind of points to the continued growth of my moderate and higher income renters, which is part of a longer term trend that we document in the report. If you look at the 10-year period immediately preceding the pandemic, so from 2009 to 2019, the number of renter households nationally increased by 5.3 million, of which 3.7 million were renter households, earning at least $75,000. So in other words, about 70% of the growth in renter households was occurring among high-income renters, even after adjusting for inflation. So these higher-income renter households now make up 26% of all renter households, and that's a six-percentage-point increase in just a decade. With this growth in high-income renter households and the incredible increases in rents that you've spoken about and which are truly historic, tracking the multifamily markets over the past 20 years, I think that the number of double-digit increases ever, I mean, I think maybe the Bay Area in the tech 
boom, maybe, but not very many at all. And now it's just commonplace. It's really remarkable. But overall, I think that when we think about these dynamics and the, the rents are going up, and we talked a little bit about affordability at the beginning, but this certainly puts the squeeze on a segment of the market. And obviously, your report covers affordability in a great level of detail. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of our figures documenting the how common is 10% rent growth. If you look at the third quarter of 2019, which was its own kind of tight market, right? Like it was a, that was a tight rental market then as well, right? No market in the third quarter experienced double digit rent growth. Not any, not anywhere in the Bay Area, nowhere on the coast, no, right? It is a relatively rare phenomenon, at least in the, the real data that we're seeing. So the fact that it's in, happening in 77 markets is absurd, right? Unprecedented in its, in its own right. And of course, the tightness of the rental market. And this growing demand, especially among higher income renters, has led to um, greater affordability concerns. In many ways, the pandemic has really only exacerbated the challenges that renter households face. So renters have been much more likely to be affected by job losses or a sudden decline in income compared to homeowners. So in the third quarter of 2021, 23% of renters reported that they had lost employment income at some point in the previous four weeks. And as a result of that, and due to other factors, of course, right, 15% of renters reported being behind on their rent in that quarter. Of course, uh, these affordability challenges don't affect all renter households equally. Right. So households of color were especially likely to fall behind on rent. Nearly a quarter of black renter households, 19% of Hispanic households, and 18% of Asian households were behind on their housing payments in the third quarter. Meanwhile, white renter households, their areas were only 9%. And this disparity reflects long-term discrimination in labor markets. Uh, many households of color work lower wage jobs in the service industry, which is a sector that obviously suffered some of the, the more drastic job cuts over the past two years. And it's not just uh, these disparities exist in other ways too, right? So lower income renters were also more likely to experience housing insecurity. About a quarter, 23% of renters earning less than $25,000 were behind on their payments. And that's about five times the rate as households earning $75,000 or more. Importantly, these trends represent the continuation of affordability challenges, as I mentioned earlier, right? And these affordability challenges, of course, predate the pandemic. So in 2019, despite a relatively strong economy and labor market, 46% of renters had housing cost burdens, right? Meaning they spent more than 30% of their income on housing. And that compares to about 40% of renters with cost burdens in 2000. And so in total, there were 20.4 million renters with cost burdens in, in 2019. That's a 38% increase over 2001. And certainly the, you know, the last couple of years have just brought so much attention to these affordability challenges, to the you know, disparate impacts of the pandemic and of affordability challenges generally. You know, one of the other stories that seems to have been getting more attention recently, and, and you cover a bit in the report, is just uh, maybe some emerging trends in uh, and changes in ownership of uh, rental properties. What are you seeing there? I think the strong performance of rental properties through the pandemic has lured a variety of investors into the market since the start of the pandemic. And that's related to 
pretty you know s- strong operating incomes, uh, especially in 2021. Um, that's related to relatively high payments, right? The NMHC rent payment tracker finds that about 94% of renter households, at least in the professionally managed sector, have been able to keep up with their payments since the start of the pandemic. And even that's that's about uh, two percentage points lower than in, in the same period before the pandemic. So for that reason, you see different kinds of investors kind of entering the market. So data from Redfin show that investor entities purchased a record high 18.2% of homes sold in the third quarter of 2021. And that's up from 11.2% the year before and 16.6% in the quarter preceding the pandemic. These investors are converting many of their homes to rentals. And the greatest growth has occurred in the single family sector, right? And that's also part of a much longer term trend that we've tracked, right, in the rental housing finance survey. Non-individual owners would include pass-through entities like LLPs or real estate corporations or REITs and and some other things, right? They own 26% of the rental stock as of 2018, and that's an 8 percentage point increase compared to 2001. And that increase has occurred across property types, right? With the largest increases occurring in the mid-size stock, right? Structures with two to four units and with five to 19 units. But the non-individual share of single-family rentals also increased eight percentage points to 25% um, of of all single-family rentals. And there are a lot of concerns about what this trend represents or could represent, right? There's some thinking that institutional owners will more aggressively raise rents and ultimately displaced tenants, especially in the single-family rental sector that has been dominated by mom and pops historically. Theoretically, these institutional players might also bring improvements in technology and efficiency that yield cost savings and could potentially prevent such kinds of displacement and and larger increases in rent. It's an interesting dynamic, right? Because in in those scenarios, you know, those institutional owners might also have capital available to them to, you know, help renters stay in their homes over time where a mom and pop may not have that choice so much, uh, which I think was a, a story we saw as as well. But uh, what what is the data showing, if anything, in, in this space in, in terms of the behavior? And, and uh, is there anything on renter experience that you're seeing? Yeah, it's perhaps a counterintuitive story too, right? But in the report, that's something we really wanted to highlight was the continued need for investment in the rental stock. And that's related to a lot of things, right? That's related to climate change, adaptation, accessibility, the preservation um, for the future as the stock kind of continues to age. And we have seen significant investments in the stock. Um, So between 2009 and 2019, nominal spending on the rental stock nearly doubled from $43 billion to $79 billion. However, most of that additional spending has come from increases in capital investments. So routine maintenance increased just $1 billion to $22 billion in total. Interestingly, and somewhat counterintuitively, as I alluded to, individual owners, mom and pop owners of rental properties are more likely to spend more on capital improvements than non-individual investors. Again, looking at the rental housing finance survey, again, about 30% of the individually owned properties received um, improvement spending of at least $3,000 compared to about 17% of properties owned by non-individuals. So again, Individual owners, right, mom and pops, are, are much more likely, about twice as likely, to spend this higher this higher amount 
on their properties than institutional owners. And that's partly related to the fact that individual investors are much more likely to own single-family homes that are going to have, on a per-unit basis, much right, higher upkeep. But even if you compare within that property type, individual investors are still more likely to spend more. I'm going to anticipate your next question, which is a why. Uh, um, and I think, first of all, uh, to be honest, I don't think we know for sure why that is. We suspect um, the age and quality of the units that individual investors own, likely plays some role in that, right? Um, that's something we can't see necessarily in the survey um, that we're using. Individual investors are perhaps also, you know, yeah, so they're more likely to own older units, units in greater need of investment, but there also could certainly be differences in approach. But yeah, the, the real why, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be happy to hear your own speculation on that one as well. Uh, so just maybe a, a follow-up question there instead of speculation. Uh, can, can you just break down, so capital improvements versus rehab? Because, I mean, you're saying $3,000, which which doesn't feel like a whole lot uh, in the grand scheme of things, but... What, what's the difference in those two things uh, in, in how you were analyzing it, at least? To answer your question, improvements include larger spending amounts, like things like remodeling um, or remodels, structural alterations, um, and, and any other activity that really increases the value of the home. While maintenance projects are meant to preserve the current quality of the home. So that's the primary difference there. And I think a piece of the report that I always learn from each time it comes out, too, is just a, a reminder that there's a part of the housing stock that absolutely needs this investment because it's it's inadequate. And I think that oftentimes when people think about the broader market, they're not thinking about that segment of the market. But there are units that would fall kind of out of the rental stock, if, but for the investment. Absolutely. So these investments are important for a number of reasons, and I think that's first and foremost, right? So there are about 3.3 million units occupied by renters that are at least moderately inadequate, right? And that's 7% of the rental stock and includes about 820,000 units that are considered severely inadequate, um, right? And these are units that have a certain number and type of structural deficiencies, including holes, leaks, the absence of some major system, plumbing, heat, electricity, water, or the presence of certain pests, right? So these units have some combination of these problems. And that's especially true for the older housing stock, right? So older housing is, of course, more likely to be inadequate, including about 11% of homes built before 1940. And that's compared to about 4% of units built since 2000s. Um, it's also worth noting that households in these homes also tend to have lower incomes, right? So one in 10 renter households earning below $15,000 lived in inadequate housing. Investments in the stock are important for other reasons also, I think. I think some of that is worth talking about, right? Investments in the stock are also needed due to climate change, right? Both to kind of preserve the stock in the face of weather-related events, uh, but also to kind of reduce rental housing's carbon footprint. So for one example, in the report, we find that 17.5 million rentals, or about 40% of the stock, are located in areas with at least moderate risk of annual losses from natural hazards. And that includes about 6 million of those units that are in areas with very very high or moderately high expected losses. And that's a threat to the stock as a whole, but it's a threat to the affordable stock, right? Both the naturally affordable and the capital A affordable stock 
Um, so about 4 million units with monthly rents under $600 are in areas that are at least moderate risk of annual losses from natural hazards. An additional 1.2 million light tech units and 700,000 project-based HUD units and 200,000 USDA multifamily units are also in these areas. And then one more reason why these kinds of improvements are important. Um, it's important to invest in the rental stock due to the aging of the population and the aging of renter households overall, right? So the number of renter households headed by someone age 65 and older is already at 7.2 million. And that number is only going to rise, right, as the baby boomer generation continues to age. So investments meant to improve the accessibility of the stock to accommodate these renters who are more likely to have mobility problems and other disabilities is is extremely important for now and moving forward. Yeah, and I think um, some of those numbers that you cite, like in, in terms of you know climate risk and the and the units that go away and the and the rents that are less than six hundred dollars and and the mm-hmm. tech properties, it kind of points back to again those at the lower end of the spectrum and that the housing safety net is really limited at this point and losing more units is really problematic. You also take a look at like what is the adequacy of the safety net and maybe you can cite some of the numbers there. Yeah, certainly. In the report, we discuss at length the federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic. From the start, keeping renters in their homes was a priority and this took many forms. So the most explicit and obvious manifestation of this priority was through the CARES Act and CDC eviction moratoriums, right? Um, They had their nuances, but both covered a large share of renters across the country for most of the pandemic through mid to late 2021, with the CARES Act moratorium going into effect as, as soon as March 2020. Beyond that, the federal government also expanded or authorized a number of cash assistance programs, including uh, economic impact payment stimulus programs, expanded unemployment benefits, increased SNAP benefits, all at different points and in different amounts kind of throughout the pandemic. Given that renter households have lower incomes generally and were much more likely to lose their jobs during the pandemic, these assistance programs disproportionately benefited renters. So allowing these households to weather financial strain and ultimately keeping many of them in their homes. So these programs worked, right? But for the millions of renters who still fell behind on their payments, nearly $50 billion in emergency rental assistance um, has also been allocated for renters to pay their back rent and get current on their utilities. So these programs administered at the state and local level um, had tremendous difficulties getting off the ground to start, in large part because most of them were brand new, right? The program also suffered significant ways to sometimes onerous documentation requirements and even more basically just a lack of awareness about the program, especially among renters, but even among landlords in some cases. So as a result, just 1% of funds were spent in the first three months of the program in early 2021. But by October, 49% of the first uh, set of ERA funds had been spent in supporting over 2.5 million renters. These collective efforts, along with other factors, right, like landlord flexibility, have combined to prevent a wave of evictions that has been predicted by many since kind of the start of the pandemic, right? So through November, eviction filings were still down about 40% below their historic average in select states and cities across the country. 
But as you mentioned, Steve, despite some of these successes, there still are a number of policy challenges to address. And the COVID-19 pandemic, its health impacts, the financial fallout of the pandemic have all kind of underscored the importance of housing for well-being. And it's especially true for lower-income households. Before the pandemic in 2019, there were over 13 million extremely low-income and very low-income renters that were eligible for rental subsidies that did not receive them. In other words, only about a quarter of households eligible for rental assistance actually received it. Of these, over half uh, experienced worst-case housing needs. They lived in severely inadequate housing or spent more than half of their income on rent or both of those things, right? And you can see the successes when you actually right, provide assistance to low-income households. So for the 4.6 million households who actually do receive federal rental assistance, and we're looking here at only at HUD programs, right? Most consist of older adults, families with children under 18, and, and people with disabilities. Um, and the average income of these households is only about 15 grand. And HUD subsidies bring their average rent down to just $355 a month, and that reduces cost burdens from this for this group significantly. And in addition to minimizing the extensive housing cost burdens, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities also estimates that rent subsidies lift about 3 million people out of poverty each year. And of these recipients, about 2.3 million are in the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And while vouchers offer significant flexibility and are typically considered more cost-effective. They do depend on the availability of suitable units and a willingness of landlords to actually rent to voucher holders, right? It's worth keeping in mind that the conditions that we're seeing today in the rental market, right, uh, market tightness, the availability stock all threaten kind of the, the voucher program tremendously. Um, so that also increases the need for production-based assistance programs as well, of which which also, of course, exists and, and add and have added you know millions of units to the stock over time. And on that supply question, you know what uh, what have you been seeing in the past couple of years uh, from a supply overall and also a, an affordable supply? So, in terms of supply overall, one of the reasons for optimism coming out of the report is the amount of new multifamily construction we're seeing across the country, right? Um, so the number of multifamily housing starts um, top 470,000 units in 2021, um, and that's the highest level of new production in almost 35 years, and that follows a strong stretch of multifamily construction over the past seven years, right? Uh, when the number of units uh, multifamily units started um, was over 350,000 each year. Um, and, and, and that compares to much lower levels the prior two decades, right? Um, and then an even larger number of units are under construction as both production ramps up, um, and it takes apartments even longer to be completed as pandemic-induced supply chain and labor issues kind of have slowed con construction. Um, but really, the good news there is that new units are on the way, even if they take a little longer to build. We're not certain yet where this increased multifamily production is in occurring, right? In 2020, multifamily permitting in core counties of large metro areas saw a larger drop than multifamily production did overall. But multifamily housing production was still heavily concentrated in these urban areas, right? With more than half of permits being issued in the core counties of large metro areas for the ninth straight year. 
we won't have more complete Census Bureau data on permits and that narrow geographic component until a little bit later this year. But the NHEB, the Home Builders Association, they track that through their Home Building Geography Index, and they've seen a reversal kind of in different kinds of geographies, right? Um, so in denser urban areas through the third quarter of last year, including, but also in more rapid growth in permitting in suburban counties of large metros and in smaller uh, and mid-sized markets. Another trend in the report of note is a small but notable uptick in the amount of single-family rental construction that we've witnessed in recent years. Um, so on average, about 5% of single-family starts from 2016 to 2020 were intended for the rental market, and that compares with about 2 to 3% in prior decades. Um, and as a result of that, as single-family production has also kind of ramped up a bit, um, starts of single-family rentals hit what we think is an all-time high of about 50,000 units in 2020. And there's some measurement error around that, but that increase does kind of jive with what we're thinking about rental demand and how and how it's shifted over time towards those kinds of units. It's interesting when we consider just the remarkable dynamics in the market right now, where where rents have you know gone up just remarkably. Um, there's building that's at, at record high levels, and certainly what we wouldn't want um, is for that to be into a market where um, demand may not be that robust going forward. Uh, you guys do take uh, something of a look forward and think about demand more holistically. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And what we've seen into 2021 is despite this increase in construction and rising, though not quite as much uh, rising completions, is demand and household growth has far outpaced those completion levels. Going back to thinking about you know what's happening, let's, let's, I guess I'll give the overall number. Right. Between the first quarter of 2020 and the third quarter of 2021, we saw an additional 870,000 renter households enter the market. And that's a big number when you consider that renter household growth had been pretty much flat between 2016 and 2019. That household growth rate pushed the overall rental vacancy rate down to just 5.8% in the third quarter, which is the lowest reading since the mid 1980s in the, in the housing vacancy survey. Numbers from the professionally managed sector really reinforce this story, right? So renter household growth in professionally managed apartments was up about 4.8% year over year in the third quarter of 2021. And that's the sharpest uptick on record in that series. And even in that segment, right, the, the vacancy rate was pushed down to historical levels after climbing half a percentage point to 6.9% in the fourth quarter of 2020. Vacancies plummeted 2.3 percentage points by the third quarter of last year to just 4.6%. And that's in data from CoStar. And that's the lowest vacancy rate in that series uh, going back to the early 2000s. And when I say like right, this unprecedented growth in markets and changes in markets, right, there's another example of that. When you think about the outlook for demand and thinking about demand over the long term, it's a bit of a mixed story in some ways, right? On one hand, the boost in demand that came from the waning of like pandemic-related restrictions, that will almost certainly cease uh, in the short term, right? Um, there aren't 5 million jobs to add to the economy over the next six months. Household formations related to 
pandemic delays, right, have likely slowed and will continue to slow. So that's going to take some air out of the balloon for demand, right? But overall, demographics are still mostly favorable, right? Young adult population growth is still is still strong. And Gen Z is a sizable cohort as well, right? So there's no precipitous drop coming in young adult population and household growth. Young adult hitching rates also have room to grow, especially if there are actual units affordable and available to those potential households, right? And what's happened in the multifamily construction side of things in 2021 and in the past few years is a cause for optimism that there will be units for those households. Moreover, the boost in rental demand coming from affordability concerns on the forced sales side isn't going to disappear overnight either, right? The supply constraints on that end of the market are perhaps even more intense than what we're seeing on the rental side of things. Homeownership is more expensive and less accessible to younger first-time home buyers than it was a generation ago, and that's pushing up rentership rate for these households, as well as older adults, as well as higher-income households, right? There are some threats to this outlook as well. Affordability is certainly the biggest and most immediate concern, um, but there are also some longer-term threats to demand related to slowing population growth the past few years, and that includes some substantial reductions in immigration, uh, and that was true even before the pandemic. So, But in 2020, the annual rate of U.S. population growth um, was lower at any time in 2020 than the last 100 years, and slowing far more quickly than was projected by the Census Bureau. Immigration also plummeted after 2016 and has yet to recover. Um, so immigration is, of course, a very important source of housing demand, with immigrants accounting for nearly one-third of renter household growth between 2009 and 2016, and about 215,000 new renter households on average each year. So those are the threats and the possible right, uh, reasons to be optimistic about the outlook for renter housing demand going forward. Uh, Alex, that's a great a great summary. And, you know, thinking beyond that a little bit, uh, you know, looking at questions of, uh, you know, equity and, and equitable housing, as we look ahead, what are some things that you see emerging there as, you know, the market starts to maybe focus more in, uh, explicitly in this direction? Yeah. I've talked a lot about the growth in higher income renters today. It's a focus of the report and what that's meant for the rental market. The renter households are still have a diversity of incomes, renter housing, renter households are still more diverse, right, than they are on the owner side, right? The median income for renters was $42,000 in 2019. And that's about half the median income for homeowners. And about one third of renters earned under $30,000, right? Including about a fifth <laughs> that earned under $15,000. In addition to incomes, renters have less wealth than homeowners, right? So the, the median net wealth for renters was just six grand, $6,300 in 2019. And when you compare that to the median non-housing wealth for homeowners, which was about a hundred grand. And again, that doesn't include the value of a home, which is the largest source of wealth for most homeowners. Lower income renters themselves, right, are more likely to be headed by an older adult. They're more likely to be uh, a single person or single parent household um, and lower income rental households are also more likely to be headed by a person of color. So black households comprise about 12% of all households, but a quarter of renters earning under 30 grand. White households are, at the same time, right, comprise nearly half of lower income renter households, um, but that's much lower than the two thirds of all households they represent. 
as a result of these income differences, as a result of the concentration of rental housing in a smaller number of neighborhoods, and due to legacies of discrimination, more than half of households in the typical high poverty tract were renters, right? And that compares to about 35% in the typical low poverty tract, uh, where poverty rates are under 20%. I'm kind of illustrating this the patterns of discrimination that have existed historically and continue today due to land use regulations and any number of things, right? 51% of black renters, 45% of Native American renters, and 44% of Hispanic renters lived in high poverty neighborhoods, neighborhoods with more than 20, or more than 20% of the people um, lived in poverty. And that compares to about 25% of white renters and 22% of Asian renters. So that's one of the longstanding and continued concerns um, we have related to equity um, for renter households across the country today and, and going forward. Alex, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This is a great discussion. And uh, again, as is the case every two years, a great report. Uh, so thank you for your work on that. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Gore. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.